Well, good morning. Good morning. Hey, happy Fourth of July. We are glad that you are here. We are guests. My name is Pastor Matt. It's my joy and honor to be with you this morning. Uh, we are in week two of our series, The Good Work, because changing the world is what Jesus died for. As Luke said, if you missed last week, uh, we jumped right into the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. We'll get into that in a few minutes, but I just wanted to ask for you to be praying this morning. Uh, David Wyman, uh, the gentleman you saw on the screen there who serves as an intern here in Halstead, is in Vessel, preaching for them this morning. Uh, so cheer him on, praying for him uh, as he loves on that church this morning. If you are new or guests and don't know uh, what's been going on around here, we've been a bit of a transition as a ministry. We are one church that meets in five locations and an online presence, uh, and we've had some pastoral shifts and some changes that have kind of put us in a position of saying, okay, God, uh, let's rebuild. Let's do what you're going to do. We believe you're here. We believe your mission and vision is the same, to make more and better disciples uh, in New York and PA, and so this series is actually a timely series. It's funny how God does that uh, as we look into what it looks like to rebuild in a way that God would call us to rebuild, uh, but not only for us as a church. This, this correlates to us as a country. Um, we, we all feel some of the brokenness in the world around us. It's prevalent. You can't avoid it. Uh, so what do we do with that? What do, how do we engage the mess that we feel culturally, um, but beyond that, even into your personal lives? Maybe there's some, some things that you're working through that God's called you to change, to impact, uh, because we believe if you've uh, put your life and faith in Jesus, that God has a mission and commissioned you to go change the world. He hasn't uh, saved you so you can be comfy on your way to heaven. Uh, he saved you so you could disrupt darkness and go bring light to dark places and go set the captives free and to bring the good news. And, and that means there's some things that you're called to do that maybe you don't even realize you're called to do yet. So that's what we talked about last week, was how do you begin to understand maybe how God has wired you because no one else can do what you can do. Uh, not that you're special in that way, but you're unique in that way, that God has wired you specifically to meet a specific uh, need. And so last week we asked some questions on how to understand that, how to lay that out. And maybe you don't know what your vision is still. That's awesome. Um, but I hope you're chasing it. I hope you're pursuing it. Maybe for you, the vision is to jump on somebody else's vision. That's okay. Maybe you go work with an organization that already has a mission and that's where God's aligned you to, or maybe God's calling you to do something new. Regardless of what it is, whether you feel like it's something out there that God has called you to restore, whether you feel like it's something in your own life, there's going to be some work to do, and there's going to be some bumps in the road. And last week, we said there's some three, three hurdles you're going to have to cross, one of fear, uh, one of pride, and I forgot what the third one was. Let me look at my notes. This never happens to me. I swear, oh, yeah, I don't know why I forgot that one, your comforts, um, how, how those just so often get in the way. So we're in Nehemiah, and if you aren't familiar with the story of Nehemiah, uh, what happens basically, this Old Testament um, nation of Israel uh, rebelled against God for hundreds and hundreds of years. God said, repent. They said, no, we refuse to repent. And so God brought the judgment of sin on them, and their city was destroyed. Now, their city was destroyed a bunch, but this one was done and final. Uh, they were wiped out, brought into exile. 140 years later, this guy named Nehemiah, of Jewish descent, is working for the king of Persia, the reigning empire at the time, and has a burden and a vision to go restore the city. And so he gathers up supplies, he gets the Persian empire to pay for this restoration, and he goes back to Jerusalem. So that's where uh, we left off last week, where he got permission to go, and he got money, and he even convinced the king to buy him a house in the process, um, and he's on his way. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump right in this morning to Nehemiah in the Old Testament, chapter 2. Uh, verse 11, we're going to pick up the story, and, and we're going to talk through today some of the big roadblocks that you're going to encounter if you want to do anything worth doing in this life. If you want to have any impact, if you want to have any change, both in your life, uh, your family's life, and the world around you, there's some things you are inevitably going to have to cross over, and that's what we're going to talk about today in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11 says this, 
I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate towards Jackal, the Jackal Well, and the Dung Gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate in the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others uh, who would be doing the work. So basically, Nehemiah uh, realizes he's got this burden, he's got this vision, and he needs to go see what he's actually up against. So he goes through the city, and he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. They just think he's walking around. Nobody knows why Nehemiah is there. And as he starts walking around, he carries, or he starts doing something very important to his first step to actually changing, and it's examining what's actually broken. Before he could fix it, he had to pause and look and reflect about what actually is broken. So there was no rose-colored glasses. He wasn't trying to pretend like this was easy. He's just walking through absolute destruction, going, what a mess. He's doing it in secret because he knows there's going to be some opposition to this and, and walking around. And I think this is why some of us never get to the breakthrough that we want in our life because we're not willing to stop and sift through the rubble. We're not willing to stop and look at the actual brokenness. And if you want to make some progress in this world, you're going to have to enter into the rubble. Because anywhere that people are is brokenness. <laughs> because anywhere that people are is sin. And sin breaks stuff all the time. We see it all around us. And if you're going to make an impact, we have to actually honestly evaluate what's broken. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your own life and some choices and some things that you've gotten yourself into. Maybe it's in a specific sphere like we talked about last week that God's called you to impact. You have to pause and go, oh, that's broken, a broken mess. And why most of us don't see the breakthrough we want is because when we see the mess, we see the rubble, we see what's been broken, we go, ugh, I'm not going there. I'm just going to move on. I'm not stepping into that. I'm not wading into what's broken. That's uncomfortable. That's messy. You see, facing your past and present is a painful process. I don't have to tell you that, though. You know that. Facing damaged relationships, facing past choices, facing past choices of the sphere of influence that you, you feel called to, whether it's a school or whether it's foster care, whether it's teaching, whatever it is, it's a painful process because it's a humbling moment where we go, there's a lot of brokenness here, and maybe, even maybe, I have some things to own in this brokenness. What we like to do is go, let's just move over here. <laughs> let's just go over here. But, but what I found to be true as I've followed the Lord over the years is that God is often going to call you things to do things that you don't want to do. He's going to call you to do the things that you don't want to do. I actually have this on the screen because I, I think this is what hangs us up from following Jesus sometimes. <laughs> you know the burden in your heart and you get there and go, I don't want to do it. I don't want to step into that mess. I don't want to step into that brokenness. Her? You want me to fix a relationship with her? Nah. <laughs> and what I found to be true is the thing that I want to do least is often the thing that God is calling me to do most. It, it typically is revealing some unsurrendered part of my heart that God is saying, no, 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 I want that one. I want you to step in there. 
And, and that's difficult. But here's what's true of the story of Nehemiah, not only in that context, but really the whole narrative of Scripture is this, is that God is more interested in restoring than he is in redoing. God is more interested in restoring than he is in redoing. You see, Nehemiah didn't get a vision to go find a new piece of property, go over to Stone's Hardware, New Milford Hardware, buy new blocks, and build a new Jerusalem. You know how much easier that would have been? Like those of us who went through these last 17,000 floods that we've gone through around here recently, like you walk into that house after a flood and you go, can we just burn it to the ground? (laughs) Can that just be easier than wading through uh, this mess? And Nehemiah doesn't get to go find new pretty rocks and build a new Jerusalem. He has to wade through the rubble. And what you'll discover as you wade through the brokenness of your past is that we see a God of redemption and restoration, not a God of starting over. But this is so countercultural. Everything in our culture right now is a throwaway society. If it's not working, get rid of it. Go buy a new one, right? If that church isn't working for you, if that pastor is kind of a bully on stage and you don't really like him and he says things too fast sometimes or somebody in the church offended you because of their stance on something, what do we do? Just find a new church, right? Why? Because it's easier. It's easier than having the hard conversations. It's easier than having to wade through the rubble. We do this with our marriages. We do this with our relationships. Why wade through? Just go find a new one. A family mess? Ah, just go find a new one. Everybody else is doing it. And I say this is guiltiest culture. <laughs> I've been very honest with uh, my family upbringing and some of the mess in that. And, and I'll tell you what, my heart is tempted so many times to go find a new piece of property, go find new blocks, and go build a new Jerusalem. <laughs> and God continually is making me to do the thing I don't want to do, we just step back into the mess and the brokenness and say, all right, God, you redeem this. This is the burden you have given me to see what is broken restored. And I've shared with you guys just our, our passion for foster care and really what we believe God is calling us to, to be influential and really upsetting the norm in Susquehanna County around foster care. And um, man, it's been, it's been a tough work. It's caused us to take an honest look at what we're doing and say, all right, God, there's redemption here. There's restoration here. But, but here's the deal. Nehemiah alone could never have accomplished this. I've never accomplished anything in my life on my own. <laughs> Nothing worth doing ever happened by myself. It always happened with the help of others. So Nehemiah uh, shows us this, but we all know this to be true, that you can't face the rubble alone. You just can't face the rubble alone. So if you uh, are wanting to step in and influence a sphere or, or help your family or help yourself break free from an addiction... You, you have to believe that life is better connected because you're going to get halfway into the rubble and you're going to get overwhelmed. You're going to get lost. It's going to beat you up. And so uh, Nehemiah invites some people in with him, just a few trusted people initially uh, that walked around and said, all right, we got a team together. Let's do this. Let's go make an impact. And then he says, when he's got his plan all together, and he goes to the nobles and pitches a plan. And I, and I love how he says it, so we're going to take a look at it. Chapter 2, verse uh, 17, here's what he says. And then I said to them, so this is the officials, the priests, and basically the rulers of the people. Um, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. We're going to pause right there. His evaluation is an honest one. (laughs) He didn't sugarcoat it. He wasn't like, you know what, guys, it's not that bad. We can get through this. He goes, no, it's a disaster. And in fact, it's worse than I thought. When he was walking around the city, one of the things that became apparent was that nobody even lived there anymore. There was like a few, it was less than 10% of the people actually returned to Jerusalem. And so they had to beg people from other cities to come back and restore it. And so it's a, it's a grave situation, not great. You know what he could have said and what probably most of us would say when we feel God has called us to do something, but it looks this hard? 
nah, let's just go home. <laughs> no, that's, that's too hard, but that's not what he does. He says, come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Man, this is awful. It's going to be a ton of work. Let's do it. What I love, though, is that he doesn't hitch them following him to him being a good leader or having a good plan or having a good blueprint or timeline. He hitches the fact that God's with him. He says, I know the favor of God is on me. This is God's vision, not my vision. So come on, let's go. Let's come jump into the rubble with me. And there will always be an invitation and brokenness for you to invite others in that you can actually influence change, which is why last week I pitched to some of you that maybe God's calling you to foster care or maybe God's calling you to something else. Yeah, sure, it's a messy situation. Come on in. Many hands make light work. I really do believe we can transform uh, what this would look like for the county. And so I love this, though, because they just start doing it. They don't go, well, let's pray about it. <laughs> well, let's think about it. No, that's, that's on God's heart. That's biblical. Let's do it. Let's just get to work. And I, and I love that. What you'll discover to be true, and, and I'm sure many of you know this, that if you're ever going to do something worthwhile, it's going to not always get that response. If you're really trying to make some ground against darkness, that won't always be what people say to you when you cast a vision or when you invite somebody into something. I would say probably more often, even from church people, what you're going to get is discouragement, is why that's not going to work. You're going to hear a lot of apathy. Oh, yeah, good idea, but nah, not for me. Or indifference. Yeah, good, yeah, good, woohoo, good, yeah. We're really good at that one as church people generally, right? Woo, yeah, go you, right? Those aren't, so let's get to work. But maybe even beyond apathy or indifference, you'll start to hear some actual opposition. And if you want to make headway, you're going to have to learn to continually engage the opposition in your life. Because if you're doing something for the kingdom of God, what that means is you're pushing against the kingdom of darkness. Now, if you've not or been around church or you're new to church, kingdom of darkness is what you feel, the pain and the brokenness of this life that is trying to consume us, and the kingdom of God is warring through us to take down the kingdom of darkness. And so you're stepping into broken places. You are inevitably going to get pushback from the enemy because you're encroaching on his territory. What happens is we begin to push back in that territory is we go, oh, no, it's hard, and we run away. Well, Nehemiah shows us there's a way forward. And so um, we're going to pick back up in... Uh, Nehemiah here in just a minute in verse uh, 19. Yep, I lost my verse there. It's verse 19. Here's, here's what happens. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it. So basically, these three guys are the three local leaders around Jerusalem. They, they run the kind of tribes that are positioned around uh, Jerusalem. When they heard about it, they mocked us and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So these three dudes around the neighbors basically hear what's going on and go, how dare you? Who, who do you think you are that you can repair this and you can restore this? You really think you're better than us, right? And if any one of us have ever tried to break free from a bad crowd, you know exactly what that feels like. If, if you've tried to make steps away from people who live in brokenness, you're going to hear this. And, and the first step really to opposition that you're going to feel is just simply accusations. What he really is accusing them of here in this passage is being anti-patriotic. How, how significant for the 4th of July. 
He, he's accusing them of being bad patriots. Are you actually going to rebel against the king? Are you actually going to do this? And what I find so interesting is that if you're going to follow God, you will often be considered un-American. At least now, maybe not 20 years ago, but now you truly want to follow God, you're going to be considered a bad Christian or a bad American. Why? Because we believe the Bible holds values that the culture doesn't agree with. And so holding some of these values on some very hot button issues is going to make you seem un-American. And so this accusation is leveled against them, but he doesn't go, and he had every right to say, the king gave me permission, I'm kind of his buddy, I kind of like feed him food all the time, and it's legal, and so it's good. Now, he doesn't say that. What did he say? I serve God, God will give us success, so get lost. Right? What, did the, what did the last sentence say there? He said, uh, we are his servants, we will start rebuilding, but as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right. That's old speak. Forget lost. You got no claim here. Go eat salt in your home and leave me alone, right? And I love his attitude towards the opposition because it's like, no, no, I'm on mission for the kingdom of God. If you want to come oppose me for the kingdom of darkness, get out of my way. Just get out of my way. I love the tenacity here as he moves forward. And, and this is probably the extent of what we're feeling culturally in America, just accusations, right? You're not patriotic. You don't love people. All the things that get leveled us against us in Christians. Um, it was actually interesting, probably a year and a half ago now, um, an individual was somehow using the name of Bridgewater to throw some racial slurs out there and some racial comments. And uh, I saw it, and I confronted it, gently confronted it, said, hey, that's not okay, you can't use our name to do that. Um, set this individual off, they were furious, and for the last year I've been getting screenshots of text messages of this individual running around just defaming my name, calling me all sorts of names, uh, just shredding my character and all these things, and I'm just reading them going, huh, isn't that interesting? I stood for truth, and I'm accused of being all of these awful things. I must be doing something right. <laughs> I must be on the right path somewhere because I've disrupted darkness. Right? You're going to feel that in your own life, in your family's life. I've talked to so many people who are trying to break away from bad family patterns and bad family habits and just getting shredded by the family. Oh, you think you're better than us now? No, I just want to make different decisions. So from there, sometimes it'll escalate. But I want you to see this in Matthew because Jesus kind of said, if the majority loves you, maybe you're not doing something right. If the majority is a fan of you, maybe you're missing something. Here's what he said in Matthew. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few will find it. What Jesus says here is if you're really following Jesus wholeheartedly, obeying him, walking the way, it's not going to be a big crowd. It's not going to be everybody. And if everybody loves your lifestyle, maybe there's a question to be asked about your lifestyle. If nobody's disrupted by the fact that you're following Jesus with such intensity that everybody's cool with it, maybe you have to ask the question, how passionately am I actually following him? What should be said of us, and this is what you're going to have to come to terms with as you continually live in a country that isn't, we're not the favored people anymore. Uh, Christians are one of the most persecuted minorities all across the world, uh, increasingly so in America. Um, here's what you're going to have to choose, God or man. Who will you ultimately obey? And this is what the apostles said when they were threatened with this very thing of basically stop preaching the gospel because it's offending us. Here's what they said. We must obey God rather than human beings. You're going to make me choose between the God of the universe or you? That should be an easy choice. 
But in this weird tension where we live in, it's not so easy. Because there's social friendships, there's all sorts of pressures we feel uh, that, that get mixed in there. But really, the ultimate question we're being asked is, who are we going to obey? Who has our ultimate allegiance? So if accusations didn't work, um, typically what's going to happen is you're going to move on to ridicule. And so uh, maybe some of you have experienced this for being a believer in the workplace already. Um, you're just getting ridiculed for what you believe. We're going to flip over to chapter 4 and see how this uh, unfolds. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break it down with their stone walls. This is basically, what, what a joke. You really think you can change that? Now, I shared my vision with you guys last week to see everybody in Susquehanna County hear the gospel for themselves and that the first call for any foster care would be to a Christian home. Um, and, and I had somebody ridicule me for it. <laughs> I had somebody come and say, do you realize how broken Susquehanna County is? you really think that's going to happen? And I thought to myself, if not us, then who? If not the people who met the love of Christ, which transforms dead people into living people, <laughs> if not the people who have watched dead people live, who else is going to bring the change, if not us? And so I heard the ridicule and thought, man, I must be onto something else that God is doing. And it's a bummer I heard it from a Christian, but I think it's a temperature on how our Christian culture really has shifted to our pursuit of Jesus really needs to be a comfortable one rather than what the Bible screams, which is the pursuit of Jesus is an uncomfortable one. And that's the way of life. That's the way towards what God has for us. So they get ridiculed and they get mocked. And uh, I've heard this with couples, that um, young couples who are trying to walk the way of Jesus and not have sex before marriage, as we believe uh, the Bible would call us to save that for uh, marriage. And I've literally had couples come to me and say, you know what, uh, my parents are giving me a hard time and they won't give me the blessing until we sleep together to make sure we're a good fit before we get married. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. What is that? That's an opposition to the way of Jesus. We're going to remove our blessing if you're going to follow the way of Jesus. Like I, I could go on with all of the things that are happening culturally, and it's just ridicule. And I go, okay, so ridicule me. That's fine. Like That doesn't, that doesn't bother me, though, honestly. Say what you want about me. Try to be God-honoring God honoring and loving, but it doesn't sway me. Now, some of us, that's all it takes. Little ridicule, and we're we're veering away from what Jesus has for us. But for others, it, it escalates, and that's where it goes for Nehemiah. That it moves beyond just verbal, moves on to actual threats of violence. The kingdom of darkness wanted to stop it so much that it, it moved on to a threat uh, of violence, which is our third thing that typically will will happen in opposition. Now, much of uh, the world that are brothers and sisters in Christ live this every day. We support uh, a ministry in India, a church planning couple, and they're, they're ferociously planting churches and raising up pastors. You know how many of their houses and churches have been burned to the ground? How, how they've had to literally run for their life, yet the gospel is just absolutely flourishing uh, through the threat of violence there. So we'll see what unpacks here in uh, Nehemiah. We'll pick it up in verse uh, 7. But when Sanblat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were closing, they were very angry. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you see somebody around you making good progress, and it begins to anger those who aren't making progress, because sometimes when we move in a good direction, it confronts people in the direction they're headed in, and they don't like it. 
They plotted together to come up and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. They're just overwhelmed by the work ahead of them. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. They so badly wanted to stop this good work, they were willing to go murder for it. They were willing to kill for it. And that is, like I said, that's a reality for so many people, and and that's not a reality for America at this point. But I I think it's important that we pause here because we kind of have this illusion in Christianity sometimes where people will use this kind of term, an open door. I'm sure most of you have heard the term, oh, it's an open door. And what that means for us culturally in Christianity is, oh, that, that's where God wants us to go, so it's going to be easy, and it's going to just go really well. And then when we feel opposition, we're like, oh, it must be this wasn't where God had for me. It must be it's a closed door. That's just not how the Bible talks about it. Um, in fact, the one, one of the few references we actually see the open door is Paul in 1 Corinthians, and this is what he says. But I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me, right? So he says, man, wide open door for ministry. Let's go. And there are many who oppose me. <laughs> most of us would not put those two sentences. Let's go back up a verse. Uh, most people would not put those two sentences together. <laughs> there's, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a ton of opposition. Must be that's not where God wants us to go. All right, let's stay home, right? No, no, no. He says, must be, if I'm feeling opposition, I'm headed where God's calling me to go. Must be, if I'm upsetting the kingdom of darkness, we're headed somewhere worth going. And I wonder where that went, where that desire to follow Jesus at all costs went. It's been true of of Christians for thousands and thousands of years, and I wonder if comfort has really become our greatest adversary. The lifestyles that we love, the friendships we enjoy, kind of being liked by most people is what really has become... the disruption to following Jesus through open doors with lots of opposition. Now for you and the sphere that you feel called to influence, I guarantee you as you begin to walk into broken places, you're going to get opposition. Whether it's at your workplace and and choosing to not skirt the line in a gray area because of your conscience, probably going to get opposition there. Whether it's because you don't agree with how somebody was treated and you want to deal with that issue, probably going to get opposition there. Your family, like I said, trying to make some of those things right, going to get opposition there. And so what do you do with it? Well, I think you take heart. I think you take courage. People used to ask the question all the time, uh, would you follow Jesus even if it meant that you were going to die? And you know, everybody at these rallies and stuff, and it's happened a lot in missions, yeah, would die for Jesus. And uh, I think that would probably be true of most people who, who believe in Jesus, that they would really they would follow him to the end. But that's not really how the enemy works. You come after me and you want to kill me for following Jesus, that's fine. You kill me, I win. Like, I love my wife, love my kids. Jesus is better. He just is. Um, I'm going to miss him, but they'll come meet me someday. Right? And so that's not really how the enemy works. What the enemy does is what he did here and what he has continually done is he begins to threaten people that we care about. Verse 12, this is what their tactic becomes. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So they stopped going after Nehemiah because they knew Nehemiah was too emboldened in his vision to be stopped. So they started going after the Jews that lived around them. They started attacking the neighbors and saying, listen, Nehemiah, because what you're doing, we're going to start hurting these people. If you would stop, we won't hurt these people. So now he leverages his heart 
to fulfill God's mission versus his love for others, which is so often what the enemy does. Like, sure, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. Yeah, but what if it costs you your, your kid? What if it costs you your spouse? What if it costs you a loved one? Would you follow Jesus then? See, now that's a different question. That's a different question of, of faith and belief and, and willingness to see Jesus as our supreme ruler and the one we want to follow forever. There, there's a movie, it was put out in about 2015. If you have kids, I wouldn't recommend them watching it. If you're an adult, I would recommend it, watching it with some tissues. Uh, it's a movie called Silence, and it's basically a dramatic documentary of the persecution that happened in Japan in the late 1500s. Um, grueling, grueling situation. There was over half a million Jews that were or, uh, Christians who were persecuted for their faith. Uh, and what they discovered in kind of the first round of persecution is they were just killing the believers when they wouldn't recant on their faith on Jesus. And they realized it wasn't working. It actually grew the church exponentially. And that's been true since the beginning of the church, that anytime it's physically persecuted, it just blows up and just begins to grow and grow and grow because martyrdom shows people the value of Jesus like nothing else. And so they realized that wasn't working. And so they, they moved to a shame tactic where basically they would take a priest uh, or at this point, it was mostly the priests that had made it there as missionaries, and they would torture them a little bit, and then they would set the priest in a cage and make him watch as they tortured one of the converts that they led to Christ. And so they would then put this image of Jesus, it was some sort of little plaque of Jesus on the ground, and say, if you would just recant and step on this image of Jesus, we'll let them go. And so they began to leverage these priests with the love for their people and said, it's not that big of a deal. Just step on the image. It's just a little compromise. And one by one, these priests, if they didn't step on it, would just have to watch their friends die because of their obedience to the gospel. And they realized what was happening is they could get some of these priests to compromise, to step on the image, which is interesting, not a big rejection, just a little compromise, on obedience to Jesus, just a little, and they would recant their faith, and then they would parade these fallen leaders around as to why you shouldn't be a Christian. Now it's a different flavor, but is that not what we're watching in American culture? We watch these leaders have a moral failure, and we just see the enemy parade them around for why you shouldn't follow Jesus. Why? Because a compromise led to a failure, which led to discrediting of the faith. But it makes you ask the question, where's the line in your obedience to Jesus? What's the cost of saying yes to God where you go, nope, not crossing that one? And when you get to that line, as I'm sure some of us will have one that we would naturally bump up against, and maybe for you, you're not following Jesus and you're already like, this is intense. Well, this is the reality of following Jesus. Um, there's, there's great things that come with it. This is part of it. Maybe that line for you is accepting Jesus in the first place and what that might mean for your social status, what that might mean for your lifestyle. Well, it's certainly going to change a whole bunch of those things. But if you're following Jesus and you believe God has called you to impact something, where's the line? One of the things I've heard most about us stepping into foster care is people just continuously saying, well, what about your family? What about your kids? What about your family? What about them? I love them. I'm not going to put them in unnecessary harm's way. But God has called me to go impact the world, not be comfy and cozy until I die. He's called me to go bring light into darkness. Well, you know what's in darkness? Dangerous things. What's interesting to me about that whole open door thing is people um, hear it and go, man, it must be God, uh, you know, didn't want you that. that. That was dangerous. I don't know how you can read this and not come away with the fact that God's going to call you to do dangerous things. I just don't know how you can read this because every individual in here that I see truly following Jesus puts themselves in harm's way. 
every apostle ended up dying. Everybody in the Old Testament who truly followed Jesus had such op- or truly followed God had such opposition that their life was threatened. Which leaves us with the question: Whose vision really leads your life? Who really has your ultimate heart allegiance? And how much darkness could we push back if Jesus had all of our allegiance? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that in the midst of a broken world, God, you have revealed yourself the ultimate healer. You have revealed yourself the ultimate restorer. God, I thank you that when I sinned, you didn't smite me and rebuild a new mat somewhere else. That you came and you died in the mess at the greatest cost of your life to restore me. Lord, I pray that the sacrifice on the cross for our true freedom would encourage us and inspire us in the same way that the men and women who sacrifice for the freedom in this country encourages and inspires us. God, I pray that we would be motivated to live our life not for us, to not be scared by the opposition, to not be scared by the mess that you're calling us into, but to believe that the God of heaven who restores all things is with us. Lord, I pray for our country As the tone is continually opposed to you, God, let us stay faithful. Let us not compromise. Let us not waver, Lord. Let us be uh, the people that our culture needs now more than ever, regardless of how uncomfortable it would be, Lord, that we would be truthful, we would be grace-filled, and we would be the most loving people they've ever met. Lord, I pray for your restoration and your redemption in the lives of the people hearing this word today, God, that you would move in their heart a desire to seek you in the mess, Lord, that the areas of the world that you've called us to influence, God, that we would be emboldened and encouraged in the face of opposition that you've already won, and that we would, with great passion and zeal, follow you regardless of what it means. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.